I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? Lord, that's our prayer. When will you come to us? When will we know you? How will, we, how will you reveal yourself to us? We know, Lord, that you've come to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, and that you come to us by your Holy Spirit, and that you come to us by your Word. So, Lord, open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes to see you, to hear you, to listen to you, to know you. We ask you, O oh God, to help us to, to love you as you have called us to love one another. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would lead us in your way of truth, in your way of understanding, and in your way of peace. Now, Lord, we ask that you would awaken our hearts and our minds that we may truly follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I was, I guess I, at this point I was 18 years old, in the fall of 1987, I arrived in Lexington, Virginia as a freshman at Washington and Lee University. And when I got to Washington and Lee University, and if you don't know anything about WNL, I would love to tell you more about it later. It's one of my favorite places and, and tribes of all the groups I'm connected with. But when I got to WNL, when I got to campus, I discovered a community where students enjoy unparalleled academic and social freedom. It's a place where a student's word is accepted and respected both on campus and in the community. Undergraduates typically schedule their own final examinations. All students take their exams unsupervised. Personal property is safe on campus. Most universities remain unlocked 24 hours a day. And a student's word is accepted and respected by merchants in town as well as by faculty member. You know, I don't ever, I think that I, I don't think I ever locked my, room, my dorm room while I was a student at Washington and Lee University. As a matter of fact, I, I know I had a key, um, but I'm not sure if I ever used it. Um, why was that? It's because at Washington and Lee, we had a very uh, strong and a very, I think, a very, I think a very evenly and wisely administrated honor system. And we're going to be talking about honor today. And, and we're going to talk about that because that environment that that honor system created, that community that was created by that ethic and that honor system is something that I miss. You know, I can't do those things anymore. I can't leave my door unlocked. I can't leave my car unlocked. I just, you know, it seems that I can't buy anything over $20 these days without presenting some form of ID. And by the way, if you present your ID, then there's always a danger that it might get stolen or that your personal information might be stolen from you in, off of the internet or something like that. You know, this just theft is rampant, the, whether it's identity theft or property theft, whatever it may be. You know, you always have to ask yourself, is somebody telling me the truth? We, you know, we have, I, I don't ever remember hearing about somebody's credit score before I was probably about 30 years old because people just assumed that if you were borrowing money, then you had some, you had the integrity to back it up. Or perhaps, you know, as we look in this political season, we, you know, we hear candidate after candidate making promise after promise. And, and we've become so skeptical, and so cynical as a society that we just assume that if a politician's mouth is open, then he's lying. Um, and so, you know, we, we just sort of take it for granted. We sort of level out the scale and assume that 
that we're being played to some degree. Well, I miss the community that I enjoyed in college because in that community, we, we really did pay attention to the concept of honor. And I, want, and I shared this morning about, about WNL and my experience there because I want to share with you a vision for a different kind of community where honor and mutual trust and respect form the bedrock of relationships. Now, when General Robert E. Lee was appointed president of Washington College in 1865, shortly after the end of the Civil War, his greatest concern and deepest desire was to do his part to heal the nation. After four terrible years of violence and poverty and doing whatever was necessary to survive the ravages of war, People needed to learn to trust one another again. And so he decided that he would begin rebuilding this trust in the nation by taking this little college community in rural Virginia, in the Valley of Virginia, and building a culture of trust. And so he put an end to the regular practice of surprise faculty visitation of the dormitories. And of, he put an end to the clandestine supervision of students' conduct. In his place, Lee established the positive though unwritten rule that students are to accept responsibility for their own conduct. This was the foundation of the honor system that the university continues to uphold today. At WNL, our honor system is based on the principle that mutual trust and respect among students, faculty, administrators, and the townspeople form the bedrock of our relationships. And the code, the honor code, is that students will conduct themselves honorably at all times, whether in the community or on campus. You know, and although the specifics of lying and cheating and stealing have historically been found to be the examples of breaches of the honor system, any breach of trust can be an honor violation, especially as as major changes in the university have taken place. For example, as, as women became a part of the university com community, the relationships between men and women and how, how, how people treat each other in community has become a greater and greater concern. And so no longer is it just about lying, cheating, stealing, keeping your eyes on your own paper. It's now about how do we treat each other? Are we going to abuse one another? Are we going to disrespect one another across gender lines, across, you know, between faculty and students? All of those sorts of things. What does it mean to have a community of not just honor, and honesty, but what does it mean to have a community of respect? Now these are all components of what it means to be a community of honor. From, from Washington and Lee's white book, which is the little pamphlet the, that the honor code is presented, used, it's used to present the honor code to the new students, this, uh, you find this phrase, the honor system today is an all-encompassing system, this is the key word, of trust. Since a central implication is that students will not lie, cheat, or steal, Members of the WNL community take one another's words and actions at face value, inside the classroom and out. Wouldn't you love to live in a community where that was the norm? Where if you tell me something or I tell you something, I know I can trust you. Where if you say you're going to do something or you say that you're not going to do something or, or we have an understanding about the way things should be, we're not going to violate that. We're going to be transparent with one another. We're going to be honest with one another. We're not going to disrespect one another. We're not going to abuse power or authority or anything like that. Wouldn't we love to live in a community where trust 
rather than skepticism is the norm. What was the hottest selling technology product last year? The ring doorbell. Why? Because, because we don't live in a culture of trust. And sadly, we don't live in a culture of trust because we've learned that we can't trust one another, sadly. Um, wouldn't it be great to live in an alternative type of scenario? Well, today we're going to be talking about honor and how David, both as king and as an individual, wrestled with that concept, both as a man and as a leader, because David wrestled mightily with the concept of honor over his whole career. Now, last week we were talking about what? We were talking about David and Bathsheba. Definitely the low point in this wrestling match over honor in his life. But today we're going to talk about an earlier season in his life when God really did use the crucible of experience to teach David some important lessons about honor. Because David wrestled with this concept his whole career. He wrestled with it as a leader, and he wrestled with it personally. Sometimes he was successful, and other times he was a miserable failure. So what is honor? What do we mean when we use that word? It's, an honor, it's a, one of those words that we use, but do we really think about its meaning? And how do, how do we become people of honor? And what does it mean to be people of honor? And so today we're going to take a look at three psalms that help us to explore David's own struggles with honor and his struggles with character and his struggles with leadership. But first, let's take a little bit of context here. Um, two of the psalms that we'll be reading today are what I call David's fugitive psalms or his cave psalms. I call them fugitive psalms because these are prayers that he prayed while he was on the run from his master, from his king, from his even surrogate father, King Saul. Now I call them his cave psalms because the introductions to both Psalm 57 and 142 make reference to times when the fugitive David was forced to hide and take refuge from Saul and his soldiers in the caves of the wilderness. Those two psalms, and, uh, excuse me, and the times they represent are important to David's understanding of character and honor because David's fugitive season, that's what I'm going to call that time when he was on the run from Saul, David's fugitive or his outlaw season was one of the most painful and heartbreaking times of his life. But it was in that season, it was in that crucible that God refined David as a man of honor. Because in that season, God allowed David to be squeezed and to feel pressure so that that which was really in him would come out. Now, you all may have heard that character is like a sponge. You know, character is like a sponge. You don't really know what's in somebody until they're squeezed. You know, if you're squeezed, what comes out. You know, when we, when we get squeezed, when a person is squeezed by fear or betrayal or threats or opportunity or temptation or lust or whatever, when somebody is squeezed, what comes out? When a person is squeezed by fear, betrayal or threats or temptation, you know, the unknown, will the pressure squeeze out honor or narcissism? Will it squeeze out courage or cowardice? Will it squeeze out empathy or compassion? Will it squeeze out selfishness or paranoia? Will it squeeze out honesty or deception? When you're squeezed, when we're squeezed, what comes out? 
That's what we're going to be wrestling with today. I want to draw an important parallel here too, that just as God allowed Satan to test and tempt and squeeze his son in the wilderness, remember when Jesus was in the wilderness for, for 40 days being tempted by Satan? That was a time of his testing. And what God was doing was he was allowing Jesus to be squeezed so that we would see what was inside of him. So that we would know that indeed he is the lamb without blemish who is worthy to carry the sins of the world and to atone for our sins. That he is the worthy sacrifice. He was being inspected. He was being tested, not because God didn't know what was in him, but so that we would see what was in him. He was being squeezed. And just as God allowed Satan to test and tempt and squeeze his son Jesus Christ in the wilderness, so he allowed David to be tempted to be tested, to be squeezed in his days as a fugitive. This was David's season of temptation. This, you know, this part of David's life was that wilderness experience. This was his 40 days in the wilderness. This was his days in the caves. And so we're going to look at this as a time of testing, a time when his character was squeezed to find out what was in him. So let's look at this season of testing for a second. Um, if you, you know, go back to 1 Samuel, beginning in chapter 18, you'll see that David's popularity was on the rise. His stock was just going up like a rocket. First, he had his duel with Goliath, with Goliath and he became famous. He was also a part of Saul's inner court. He was the one man who seemed to be able to calm Saul's spirit when he would, when he would go into a rage or when he would go into a deep depression or something like that. And more and more people were looking at David as a real leader. He became a, a, known as a competent battlefield commander and he started to take more and more responsibility as a captain in Saul's army. And one day, it, was, it just started getting to Saul. Uh, there's a story uh, in the scripture in, in Psalm, excuse me, in 1 Samuel 18, where it says, As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women uh, came out of the, all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And and Saul, it says, was angry. And this saying displeased him. That's a euphemism. It displeased him. Like that, he wasn't mildly tweaked. He was furious. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? What does that sentence mean? It's like, if it keeps going in this direction, one day they're, gonna, they're not going to be satisfied to have me as king. One day they're going to want him as king. And his paranoia and his jealousy and all those, those things that were, that were deep in him were being squeezed out by the pressure. And we see that when Saul was squeezed, jealousy, anger, you know, paranoia, all of these things started to come out. Saul got jealous. And as David's stock went up, he became more and more paranoid. So paranoid, in fact, that over the next few chapters, he tries to kill David Five times. Five times. Now, the first two we can maybe explain away as just sort of fits of, 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 of psychotic breakdown. We know, we know that Saul was, was harassed by, you know, by a tormenting spirit, and we know that that created in him 
some, some uh, what we would call now mental illness. I mean, it's a spiritual cause to a mental illness. But what happened? You know, there were, the reason that Saul brought David into his court is because David, as an accomplished musician, was able to, was able to play his lyre, play his harp, and calm Saul's spirit. David was, in, David was, in fact, the first music therapist. I mean, we see it here. He was the first music therapist. And he would bring his harp and he would play for Saul and Saul would calm down. But sometimes Saul was in such a state, he was in such a, a position that not even that would work. And there were two times where we see that Saul just... In, his, in the midst of his breakdown, grabbed his spear and threw it. It says that he threw it at David and tried to literally pin his head to the wall twice. Now, after the first time, if I'm David, I'm thinking, okay, wow, that was scary, but poor Saul. The second time after it happens, I would start telling the other guy, I would start telling the guards, I'm not going in there till you've cleared the room of spears. He's done this twice. Let's, could, we, could, we make sure that the, could we make sure that the spears are put away before I go in to see the king today? Because he did try to do it a third time. Now those are three times when, David, when he just, as a fit of rage, became so paranoid that he tried to kill David. But there are other times that it was more calculated. At least twice he sent teams of men to kill David. Another time, he also tried to set up the whole incident where David would be killed in a suicide mission. You remember when he betrothed Michal to David, he said, he said well, you can, you can have her as your wife if you go and kill 100 Philistines. Of course, that plan backfired on him because he thought that David was going to be killed, and what happened instead? David killed 200 Philistines, and his renown grew. So that totally backfired on him. So another time, he sent out... A, he sent out a, a kill team to get David, and then another time they snuck into his apartments in the palace with his wife, McCall, and, she, and, and they, they figured out what was going on, and she put um, some statuary in the bed in his place, so when they came in to kill him, they ended up just attacking the bed. You know, the, you know you've seen the trick in old movies where they put the pillows in the bed, and the assassins come in and end up killing, cutting up or shooting the pillows in the bed. Well, this is where it all started. I love it. So many of those things started in, in the story of David. But he, sent, he actually sent assassination teams. So there are the times that he, he just tried to kill David in a fit of rage, and there were also the times where it was premeditated, where his anger against David was so deep that he, he felt like the path forward was to take him out. And so David, after that last attempt, after the one where he escaped from the bed, David had to go on the run, and he became a fugitive uh, in his own country. And it's during this season that I believe he wrote Psalm 57 and Psalm 142. That's, these, these are what I call his cave psalms or his fugitive psalms. Now, I call them his cave psalms not only because he wrote, the, the, because in the, the introduction to these psalms, it says that he wrote them you know, in the cave. And let's understand that process. I think he, he prayed, he composed these prayers in the cave, and then later in his life he went back and sort of polished them up. I don't think he had a desk and papyrus and all that kind of stuff. He said, I'm going to write a psalm today while I'm on the run from Saul. I think these are things that came from his heart. He remembered them. They were so deeply embedded in his heart that he, that he remembered them and, and God, of course, inspired them and attended his writing of Scripture. But, but these are things that he went back and he, he, he refined later. But... 
The reason I call them cave psalms, in addition to their physical location, is because caves represent what? Darkness. Wildness. Darkness. How many of you have ever been to caverns up in Austin or to Carlsbad Caverns or anything like that? I'm going to go ahead and tell you I am not a cave or cavern guy. All right. I, had a, I had a good friend, one of my best friends in seminary, he's from West Virginia. He was always saying to me, Bob, let's go spelunking this weekend. I'm like, you're crazy. Why would you want to crawl around on your belly in a cave in the mountains of, of West Virginia? He said, oh, it's awesome. You get to spend all that time underground. I said, I will spend plenty of time underground when I'm dead. I do not need to add to that tally, okay? But he, that was his favorite thing. But, you know, even, I, I, am, I will never go spelunking. I will never say never. I will never go willingly spelunking. But I have been to visit, like, caverns and caves and things like that, the kind of the big touristy caverns and, caverns and caves. And I remember visiting these caves up here. I think they call them inner space up here just outside of Austin. And, of course, you know, whenever you go into one of these caverns, whether it's Carlsbad or inner space or wherever it is, the, the, the tour guides love to give you the experience of total darkness. And they say, and they get the whole group into this cavern, and they say, now, they make sure everybody's okay with it, and they say, now, we're going to turn off the lights, and you will, for the first time in your life, experience total darkness. And I remember thinking, all right, fine, whatever. I mean, you know, I'm, 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 at this time, I'm trying to muster my courage anyway, because I'm really kind of freaked out about being this deep underground. And they kill the lights. And what happens? It is totally, totally dark. Have you ever been in a cavern when they've, when they've done that, when the tour guide cuts off the lights, and it really is total darkness, and you're like, wait a minute, total darkness, you know, darkness usually means that if I wait a few minutes, in a, you know, just a few minutes, my eyes will adjust and I'll be able to see something. There's got to be some ambient light, but there's nothing. And that total darkness, not only, I mean, it, it becomes so dark that you can't see your hand in front of your own face, and you actually start to feel it. I don't know, you know, it's, it's the combination of the, of the cold, the dampness, and just the darkness, the inability to see or your eyes to collect any light whatsoever. It really starts to, it starts to work on me. I don't know, maybe you love it, but, it's, but to me, it's that sense of total darkness that actually feels like it's pressing in on you. It feels like it's squeezing you, or it feels like it's squeezing me. And I think that the fact that David wrote these these psalms in the caves, I think that that's recorded, is important on both a physical and a metaphysical level. In other words, it's not just that he was in a cave. It's that he was in a cave situation. He was in a cave experience where that darkness was just pressing in on him. It was squeezing in on him. And in that time, God was squeezing him to find out what was really in him, to show him what was really in him. You know, have you ever been in that kind of darkness? I don't mean just in a cave. I mean where you just felt like the whole world was squeezing in on you. I think these two prayers are important because they tell us, or at least they show us, how David prayed when he was in that moment of deep darkness, when he was in that moment of, of cave-like darkness. And so the question we want to ask these psalms is, how do you pray when you're that scared? How do you pray when you're that squeezed, when the cave is dark and the darkness is closing in around you? How do you, how do you pray in those situations? Well, 
As we look at Psalms 57 and 142, I want you to look for three common elements. The first element I want you to look for is that in both of these Psalms, one of the things that he does is he confesses his fear. First thing you do when you're you're in a cave, if you're scared, is you admit you're scared. Don't try to bow up your your chest and say, I'm not scared. I can handle this. You're just going to start running into the walls. Number two, he grounds himself in the knowledge and praise of God. David David says to himself, I cannot do this on my own. I need someone who is stronger than me. Think about this. If you're in total darkness, what's better than a light? And what's better than the light of the world? Third thing, he surrenders to God's control. That is, he realizes in both these psalms that the only way he is going to survive this squeezing, this darkness, is for him to surrender completely to God's control. So look at Psalm 57. It begins with, you know, if we, if, if we look at David's fear. Look at verses 4 and 6. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way. Here he's saying, I am being chased. I am being hunted like an animal. That's my fear. What would it be like to be hunted like an animal? That is his fear. It's like, I, I have done nothing but serve my king. I've done nothing but serve my country. And I'm being hunted like, like a wolf or a bear or a rabid dog. And what happens when you, find a, when you find a rabid dog? You put it down. He knows the end result of this. And that's, you know, he confesses his fear. Look at verses 1 and 2. He cries out for God's mercy. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. I cry out to, the, to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He realizes that, you know, if this is my fear then I have, to rele- I have to lean on my relationship with God. And so he turns to God. And what does he do? He prays for God's protection. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. He's confessed his, he's confessed his fear. He's claiming his relationship with God, and then he says what? I am putting myself in your hands. He surrenders to God's control. He surrenders to God's protection. He surrenders his trust to God's sovereignty and love. You know, that's an important formula to think about in those moments when we are squeezed, when we are pressed, when the darkness is closing in around us. You know, it's important to understand what we need to do to pray in those situations. Because sometimes when we're that squeezed, if we're not prepared, we panic. You know, when, when we are squeezed, we, we very often default to either panic or preparation. And if you're preparation, if you're prepared, excuse me, then you're ready to pray for help. If you panic, then you might fall to anxiety. So what I want to say here is in this psalm, and we'll look at Psalm 142 as well, you know, think about, you know, in, in a crisis situation, you know, who, you know, first of all, am I, am I ready to confess my fear, ready to confess my need, ready to confess that I'm in trouble? Because how often do matters get worse when we live, when we try to live in denial? This is no big deal. 
I got this. this is, there's no problem here. Have you ever gotten yourself in a deeper hole because you didn't admit that you were in a hole? I know I have. Then the second thing, he leans on his relationship with God. Well, what's the first thing that's got to happen before you can lean on your relationship with God? You've got to have a relationship with God. And we all have a relationship with God, don't we? We're either disciples or rebels. There's no middle ground. I mean, I hate to say this, but, you know, the reason people are seekers or lost or whatever usually has, usually has more to do with their wanting to maintain their own control and not relying on God. You know, that's, you know, but we're not going to get into that right now. But the point is, it helped, you know, before we go into that cave, do we have a relationship with God? Now, last week we talked about the fact that you know, it's, you know, there are no atheists, or two weeks ago, there are no atheists in foxholes. But the time to build your relationship with God is actually in the light of day, when you're out in the clean air, when you're out in the open, you know, when, you know, so that you're prepared to take it into that cave. Because again, when you're squeezed, you might default to prayer, but you might also default to panic. If you're not prepared, you're going you're gonna to panic. So to have that relationship with God is so important, but then to surrender to God's control in that moment of darkness when you're being squeezed. Y'all have heard me tell, uh, tell the story just dozens of times about that time when Bo and I were canoeing up on the lake and, uh, up in upstate New York, and this thunderstorm just came out of nowhere. Lightning started striking. The wind started blowing like crazy. And of course, being an experienced canoeer, an experienced paddler, what was my first reaction? Paddle harder. You know, it's like whenever there's a problem, you just paddle harder. Paddle, 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 paddle. That's what I do. You know, how often is that my reaction to any problem? To trust in my paddle, uh, my power, and just try to paddle harder. You know, I, it didn't take me too long to realize that my paddling was doing nothing. Especially when, you know, especially it was crazy because I was telling Bo to paddle. And Bo weighed about 50 pounds at the time. And I weighed 180 pounds, and so the canoe was something like this. So I said, paddle harder, and he's just, he's just blowing the air. His paddle's not even in the water. But don't we rely on our paddling and our own power rather than go to God in prayer? What David is saying in this psalm and in the next is we have to surrender to him because he's the one who has the power to make a difference. Let's look at Psalm 142 for a second. If you look at verses 1, uh, one through 3, with my, excuse me, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. You know, and then look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. At this time, he's not being chased as much as the fact that he feels utterly alone and abandoned. You know, what's worse than being in the dark in a cave? Being in the dark in the cave alone. You know, at least when they, you know, when I went in the cavern and they turned off the lights, I had Morgan's hand to hold. <laughs> I'm here to, I'm here to protect you, honey. <laughs> what happens if you're trapped by yourself, all alone, in that cave? And here, David's, David's confessing his fear. Not only am I being hunted like an animal, but I'm by myself. I mean, he wasn't literally, but he. He had that weight. The darkness was closing in on him, and he thought he was by himself. But then, 
what's the realization that comes to him that makes him realize he's not by himself? It's his realization of his relationship with God. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. That's verse 5. Again, he confesses his fear, but then he leans on his relationship with God. That's the great thing about your relationship with God. Even if there are no other human beings around you, he's always there. The benefit of an omnipresent God. He's always there. There's no place you can go. go. I can't go to Sheol. I can't go to the place of the dead because you're there. If I go to the highest heaven, you're there. You're never alone. The problem is we just have to get over that mental hurdle that, that, that our eyes deceive us with, which is that I'm all by myself. I don't see anybody else around me. It's too dark. We have to look with the eyes of our heart and understand that our God is still with us. So he leans on his relationship with God. And then look at beginning verse 6. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. He throws himself on God's mercy. He surrenders to God's power. He says, I can't do this on my own. I can't paddle my way out of this. I don't have the power to fix this. I have to surrender to your will. He surrenders to God's control and he trusts in his sovereignty and love. Now, the reason I bring up these two cave psalms is because that's, you know, that's when God is testing him. That's when God is squeezing him. That is when, you know, it's in these cave moments that God is just bringing out the best of what is in David. Forget about the whole Bathsheba thing for a minute. That's later. This is when he is squeezing the best out of David. And then one day he really puts the content of David's character to the test. If you remember, or if you want to look uh, with me, look in 1 Samuel chapter 24. Another cave experience for David. Um, one day, the Lord really put David's fear and honor to the test. He really put David's faith to the test. Saul and 3,000 of his soldiers were bearing down on David and his small band of merry men. They were searching for David up in the hills, and Saul, after long days of searching, finally needed to take a break. So he camped his men down at the bottom of the hill, and he went up the hill to the side of the hill to a cave to relieve himself. And the Bible says that he came to a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. I mean, how do you like that arrangement? Of all the caves of the Judean hills, Saul decides to take a potty break in the one cave where David and his men are hiding. So, you know, do you ever, I mean, do you believe in the providence of God yet? Um, <laughs> now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Here is David in the cave. This time, however, he's not being squeezed by fear. He's being squeezed by what? Temptation. I mean, because it can, you know, the testing, the squeezing can take a variety of forms. And David's men are looking at this situation. They see Saul. They're all here. They're armed to the teeth. 
And they realize here is our opportunity to end this. Here is our opportunity to kill Saul, who's entered the cave to relieve himself. They were saying, here's your enemy. It is most vulnerable. Now's your chance. David, go kill him and take the throne once and for all. But here's what David said. David said, no. When David was squeezed, he said, no. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my king, the Lord's anointed. And so instead, David arose and he stealthily cut a corner or cut a piece off of Saul's robe. So after Saul finished his business, he got up and he left the cave to go down and rejoin his men, never knowing what David had done. But after Saul leaves the cave, David follows him out. So he comes out and he exposes himself from his hiding place. Saul didn't know he was in there. Saul didn't know what was going on. Saul could have packed up the army and they could have moved on. But no, David instead decides to follow Saul out of the cave holding this, this shred of the cloak. He calls out to him and then he gets down on the ground. He bows low to him and he shows him the piece of his robe that he's cut off. And with that, that piece of cloth, he is showing Saul that I could have killed you if I wanted to, but I didn't. And so David says to him, why are you still chasing me? Verse 8, afterward David also arose and went out of the cave with the corner of Saul's robe in his hand. And he called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of the men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. And then listen to this. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. You know, those words, that you may know and see that there is no treason in my hands, in my opinion, that is the biblical definition of honor. God has squeezed David, and what came out was honor. You know, David could have exploited Saul's vulnerability. And he could have disgraced the king by cutting his throat or cutting off his head while his pants were down. It would have been easy. It would have been practical. It would have removed the one obstacle standing between him and his destiny. It would have been rational. But it would not have been honorable. Because honor is choosing to do what is right over what is easy. To do what is right over what is practical. To do what is right even over what may be rational. Because David chose to honor God's anointed because he honored God. And so he didn't kill him easily in the cave while Saul was vulnerable. Instead, he knew that honor was more important than either survival or success. 
So what happens to Saul? Saul becomes ashamed and acknowledges that David is better than he. Saul acknowledges that God has indeed chosen David to be king over Israel. You know, there's an interesting incident, I'm not going to go into it, in the 26th chapter, almost the same type of scenario where once again, David has the opportunity to kill Saul, but he shows his own submission, he shows, shows his own honor by not killing Saul while he is asleep in his camp. I think, you know, as David looked back on his life, as he reflected on the decisions he made, I think that he, he probably... You know, he probably looked back on, on this moment, on these moments, as some of, his, some of his best, where he really was with the Lord and the Lord was with him. Honor is choosing to do what is right over what is easy. And I believe later in his life, David, when he had a chance to reflect on honor and what it means, he wrote down, down his thoughts in Psalm 101. If you look at Psalm 101. In Psalm 101... David determines to praise the Lord, to be blameless in his own walk, and to rule in a godly way and drive out evil. I mean, first of all, look at verse 1. He sings of God's love, he testifies to God's justice, and he praises God. I want to go back to that word justice for a second. Because honor is not just about how you conduct yourself in your personal life. If you're a leader, it's also about how you conduct yourself in your public life. It's not just about the personal decisions you make, it's about the public and the policy decisions that you make. So if we look at verses 2 through 7, you know, we see that David makes some important statements about personal honor, about personal integrity. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. But then there's also this, this note in verse 1 about justice. In the very first verse, he mentions justice. Honor must not just be personal. It must be public, especially if you're the king. You have to rule with honor and integrity and honesty without abuse or manipulation. Which begs the question, what's the, what's the connection between personal honor and public trust? Can you live a life of, you know, of do whatever you want in your personal life, but, you know, but then live another way as a leader. You know, I'm, I'm, I hope that it's still not too soon, and I know that people have different political perspectives in this room, but, you know, it was a, it was a staggering thing to me when back in, uh, in 1996, when President Clinton was impeached for, you know, for, uh, for his affair with Monica Lewinsky. And I remember, you know, hearing the discussions about it, and I remember the debates about it, and one of the debates that, that you heard over and over again was that, that this was a personal matter. It didn't have anything to do with the country. And what really bothered me about that situation is, is that I don't think you can separate a person's personal integrity and their public policy and witness, because I think at one point, this is going to inter this is going to affect this. And I think that's something that we need to ask of all of our public figures. Not just our politicians, but your pastors and everybody else. If you're living a, a life of you know, personal sin, is that not going to affect your leadership? Absolutely. Those two things have to be held together. But how does a person's personal honor affect his per public leadership? 
And David is somebody who said personally, I will not suffer injustice. And you know when he said that? You know when he made his strongest claim, his strongest plea that the weak should not suffer at the hands of the powerful? It was when Nathan called him on the carpet about Bathsheba. Here David had created, had, had gone into, had created, a, or had uh, perpetrated a great personal sin. And yet he was, his public conscience was, oh, but we've got to be a just people. It can also reverse. You can have a lot of personal honor, but then if you neglect the poor, if you, neg- if you neglect justice, things like that, you've got to ask yourself, well, have I created a community of trust? Have I community, created a community of honor? I mean, this is a tension in David's life, this public and personal sense of honor. But let's continue to look down at this verse, verses 3 through 5 and verse 7. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. David vows to forsake the things that are godless. The things that are godless. What that means is that our actions matter. They, that is part of our honor. You know, what is our, you know, how well do our actions portray what is inside of us? When we're squeezed... Do our actions match what we say we believe? It's a matter of integrity. You've all heard the expression that your, your actions speak so loudly that I can't hear your words. Honor is a matter of integrity. Do our actions match the things we say we believe? You know, when we have integrity, it means we're not a mix of contradictions. I am who I say I am, and I believe what I say I believe. And I'm not willing to, fit, to change my beliefs just to fit a particular situation or context. But it's not just about actions, it's also about words. He says, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. It's, it honors about honesty as well. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's important that our words, especially in an environment where words are so important, that our words be truthful. You know, the sad fact is people lie for a variety of reasons. And there will always be debates about whether certain types of lies are defensible. But no matter what the motive, uh, what the motive is behind a lie, it's easy to tell a lie. But really, they're like potato chips. You can't tell just one. You have to tell a lie to cover your lie, to fix the lie, to kind of redirect from the other lie. And before long, you've eroded any trust between you and the person. Here's here's the truth about trust. A lot of people think that trust is like a bank. Think think of this as a bank, a vault. And over the course of our lives, we we put deposits of trust, deposits of goodwill into that vault and then, you know, if we ever, you know, if we ever lie, if we ever sin against somebody, it's like, well, we've, we've got so much money in the vault, we, we just had to make a little withdrawal. So I told a little lie, but it's, it's okay because I've got all this stuff banked up here in the vault. And a lot of times we think that's the way trust works. But the truth is, trust is more like a balloon. You can blow it up, you blow it up, you blow it up, but what happens when you prick it once? The whole thing pops. And even, you know, anytime we tell lies to one another or anytime we misrepresent the truth, it erodes trust. It pops the balloon. 
And it takes a long time to get that thing blown back up. So even, you know, I mean, I mean even, if, even if it's the little white lie like, you know, no, 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 I think that's a great haircut. I mean, I, mean, I don't want to overblow this, but, but, you know, sometimes you begin to wonder, oh, well, can I trust this person? I, I'll t- I, you know, that's one of my triggers. I hate, I'm a, I've had lots of, you know, personality testing, all this kind of stuff you have to do for, for ministry, psychological testing. And one of the things that it reveals is I am, I am very, on the one hand, I am very gullible. I mean, I am easy to fool. On the other hand, when I find out that I've been tricked or played or manipulated or gamed, I become wrathful. It's like, I gave you my trust and you abused it. You're in for it now, buddy. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's, you know, the way a lot of people are. I mean, I don't even like card tricks because I feel like I've been deceived or something. Um, <laughs> but, it's, but it's one of those things. When we, take, when we abuse that trust, it, or when we abuse honesty, it removes that trust. The last thing, well, another piece of that, too, I should say, is transparency. And this really goes to what David said. You know, he says, you know, David says to the king, I want you to see that there's no treason in my hands. I want you to know you can trust me. When, the, when things get hard, when things get dark, when I am squeezed, I want you to know that you can trust me. An important piece. The last thing that he brings up are relationships. You know, our, our words, our actions matter, our words matter, our relationships matter. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. But earlier he says, I will not tolerate the godless. I will not tolerate the wicked. How do we, you know, great question came up this morning from somebody. How do we, you know, how do we minister to people who are sinners if we're not supposed to associate with people who are not honorable? I mean, David is saying your relationships matter. If you, as, as the old saying goes, if, you know, you can never fly with the eagles if you're always running with the turkeys. How do, you, how do you become a person of honor if you're constantly surrounded by people of dishonor? When I've done jail ministry in the past, and I've talked to people who are getting ready to get out of prison, you know, one of their greatest fears is, I'm going to go back to my old neighborhood, and I'm going to be around the same people who got me in here in the first place. What do I do? You know, how do we hold intention? The Great Commission... You know, to, you know, to go out and to share the good news with people who are not saved and yet not get corrupted. I think David wants us to understand that, you know, we're always going to be surrounded by sinners. We're even sinners ourselves, right? But what he says, or actually not him, but what another psalmist says in Psalm 1 is, don't fall in with the cynics. Don't fall in with the scoffers. You will have contact with them, but don't fall in with them. And the best safeguard against that so that you don't have to cut yourself off from people you think are unrighteous, is make sure that you are always around godly people. You know, I can tolerate, you know, the, the challenges and the temptations of being around, around you know, people who do not know the Lord if I am with people who do know the Lord. So if I'm in an accountability relationship with the church, if I, know, if I am with people who are encouraging me in the right way to go, then I have the strength, I have the fortitude, and I've got the team that protects me so that I can share with that person who is on the edge or who is, who is going the wrong direction. You know, one of the things that, that we learned from, from one of the preachers at the, uh, at the eco-conference last week, Dr. Maurice Sama, uh, who's the largest, he's the pastor of the largest evangelical church in Egypt, 
He said that Jesus' ministry was incarnational. That means that he took on flesh. But the Bible says that he, t- he became one of us yet was, and was like us in every way, yet without sin. The tension for us is to be embedded, to love, to embrace the sinner, and yet not fall into the same sin. Is that a tension? Absolutely. Is it a tension that David recognizes? Yes. But here's the thing. People who live without dishonor need people with honor around them or else they'll never learn what it is. And so we have to be with those folks. The problem with us Christians and the reason we're not transforming the world is because we spend too much time with one another. We need to spread this thing out. It's like they used to say about preachers. Preachers, can do, preachers are like manure. You know, you spread us out, we can do a lot of good. You pile us up in one place, we stink. Same thing with Christians. You spread us out. The garden flourishes. We stand in a pile, we stink. But are we taking the honor and the love of God to the rest of the world? Yes, that's attention. But David is saying, you know, when you are, you know, when you are in these relationships, those relationships matter. Are you affecting them or are they affecting you? Those relationships matter. Well, I've, I've got a lot more to say, but I'm not going to get into it today because there's just too much there. Sadly, um, well, you know, honor is all about trust. And again, remember that biblical definition that you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. Could somebody look at you and say, you know what, I look at Emily and I know that with her there is no wrong or treason in her hands. You know, I may, I may look at Bill. Bill may tell me something that I don't want to hear, but I know there's no wrong or treason in his hands. He's shooting with me straight. He's telling me, he's telling me things that maybe I don't want to hear, but I need to hear. Talking to Sally, I know that she's going she's gonna to tell me the truth. And she's going to act with integrity. And if she says she's going to be somewhere at 5 o'clock, she's going to pick up my son from school because we can't get there, I know she's going to do it. You know, that's, that's honor, that's integrity. It's to know that there's no treason, no second agenda, no, no hidden thing that we bring. Sadly, when are we most likely to compromise our, our honor, our integrity? It's when we're squeezed. And that's why we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared to, to, to live with the idea that we want to live in a community of trust. And the only way we're going to do that is to throw ourselves on God's help. Because we can't, we can't push the darkness away ourselves. We can't, we can't stand up to the pressure of the squeezing ourselves. We need Him to help us. But if we will rely on Him, we will find that our actions become more and more honorable, and people will understand they can trust us. Honor is choosing to do what is right over what is easy, and it is living in such a way that, there will, that people will know that there's no wrong or treason or treachery in my hands. Now, the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. But like the biblical heroes, uh, like other biblical heroes, he was a man of flesh. Like you and me, David was a fallen sinner, capable of both honor and dishonor. At times he made God very happy, and at times he made God, he grieved God very greatly. But, as was always the point with the great heroes of the Bible, through David, God was demonstrating how he could use even broken sinners like David and like you and like me to change the world with God's righteousness and grace. 
God squeezes us, not just so that others will see what's in us, but so that we will see what's in us. Because he doesn't just allow us to suck back in that which is squeezed out. He rather wants to pour his righteousness, his honor, his truth into us so that we will reflect the character of his son. Who, you think about it, in that moment when Christ was most squeezed, at that moment where the darkness was closing in around on the son of David, not in the wilderness, but in the garden of Gethsemane, what did Jesus say? How did he respond? What was squeezed out of him? Not my will, but thy will be done. The single most important sentence ever to be uttered since Genesis 1.1. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Thank you, O Lord, that in David and especially through Christ, you showed us that when you squeeze us, if we are trusting in you, if we are grounded in your relationship, if we confess our fears, and if we, honestly, if we will surrender to you, you will, show, you will allow integrity, honor, truth, all of these things to be, to be squeezed out of us. Lord, show us what's inside of us so that we will trust you and follow you, and more importantly, Lord, so that we will create an environment and a culture of trust. Lord, we long for that time when we no longer have to lock our doors, or we no longer have to worry about the information we're getting, or we no longer have to worry about people lying to us. Lord, we beg for that day, and we beg that you would begin to create that community by starting with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.